Hello, 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 and welcome to the fifth official episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism. Today we will be talking about disruptions in the 20th century and how certain innovations have impacted our lives our modern lives today. So this episode, we'll be looking at two cases and then we'll be trying to pull out economic lessons from there, much like the previous episode that we did on economic growth not too long ago. So before we get into the cases, perhaps you should try and get you know a clearer understanding of what this idea of disruption really means. Back in 1995, Professor Clayton Christensen first came up with the concept of uh, disruptive innovation in an issue of the Harvard Business Review. In it, he describes the concept as a principle where established firms with large market share are met with new competitors whose offerings were either simpler or cheaper. So by way of example, you could think of this uh, for firms like Uber that are taking on you know, the local established taxi companies or Amazon who are facing up against the established physical retail outlets. In either scenario, the firms disrupted by changing the way that they did business. So in Uber's case, the company neither had a physical fleet of cabs, nor actual hired drivers as part of the staff. In fact, Uber's main function was to provide a matching service that connects people who need transport with people who can provide transport. In the end, the customer is still able to get from point A to point B, much like how he could have done with a traditional taxi, but because the, the, the Uber business model had a much uh, lower overhead, the, the price for a tax, the price for a ride was much cheaper for consumers. And they had the added value of uh, not having to physically flag down a taxi, nor having to incur high booking fees. So in today's society, however, there is a growing perception that the term disruption or disruptive innovation or innovation is uh, somewhat overused particularly amongst budding entrepreneurs, you know, in, in the tech sector, Silicon Valley, in, in that kind of arena. So as, as Leigh Alexander pointed out in an article for The Guardian, the term disruption is easily picked up by startups as there is a somewhat moral connotation surrounding the term. So after all, the disruptive firm is one that is trying to fight bureaucracy and efficiency, you know, thereby driving up competition instead of complacency, and at the same time, trying to solve problems to everyone's benefit. So this, connot- this connotation served a key function for startups in that it made it the firm more attractive and drew in invest- investor funding. However, because not every firm promising disruption actually delivers it, the increasing use of the term dilutes its meaning. As Kevin Roos writes in an article for NY Mag, the Oculus Rift, the smart thermostat, and Tesla Motors may tout themselves as disruptive innovations, yet they are hardly examples of cheaper or simpler methods of business as the term was intended by Christensen. Alexander adds further that rather than changing the way we do things, these supposed disruptive innovations just add more choice for the consumers while the established players hold their ground. The question then begs, if today's innovations, you know, if the majority of them or the, 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 the more obvious ones or the more standouts, if, if, they, if today's innovations are not exemplary of the classical use of the term disruptive innovation, then what is? And how does a disruptive firm or how does a disruptive innovation benefit people? Or in other words, 
In what way does the innovation disrupt? So in answering these questions, perhaps we can look to the past, to a period that saw inventions such as the personal computer, the airplane, and the automobile, for examples and lessons of disruptive innovations. Today, therefore, we're going to be looking at examples for, of disruptions in the 20th century, examining the fruits of innovation, and how they have impacted human lives. Alright, so let's move on to the first case. The first case involves something that is very, very common in most uh, modern households today, the washing machine. So in the days before the use of the washing machine, the manual task of cleaning and drying clothes was a particularly arduous one, and a study reported in the Journal of Economic History by Valerie Ramey found that in the 1920s, the average housewife spent about 11 and a half hours a week on laundry and ironing. This is of course due to the nature of the activity itself, whereby Sarah Squire notes in an article written for the Foundation of Economic Education that laundry is a, quote, Sisyphean task, quote, and that it is never-ending. After all, you know, if you wear the same clothes multiple times, you know, day after day after day, this can be very uncomfortable, and if you're, you know, in, in maybe an office setting or a more professional setting, this can be very unprofessional or very unsightly. So manually washing clothes back then was a necessary uh, routine task. Further, before the widespread use of uh, the, the modern electronic automatic washing machines that we have today, there were many more complications, uh, such as how to best get rid of stains, how to prevent staining white clothes, finding a water source to wash the clothes, and you know if the weather outside was actually conducive to drying. In fact, it was with these complications that in 1868, the New York Times heralded the invention of the metal washboard as a, quote, great American invention, end quote, because it included grooves that made it easier to scrub clothes. Lastly, it would be remiss not to mention the limitations that the manual task of washing had for society. Noticeably, as women were assigned the duties of caring for the household, the manual task took up much of her time, depending, of course, on the size of her family. This would, this would not be much of a problem for you know, upper-class citizens who could afford maids or helpers to help them clean and do the laundry for them, but for middle- and lower-class households who, who, you know, who had to do the, the task of laundry themselves, more time spent washing clothes meant that the housewife did not have time to pursue other activities. Consequently, this had implications for the economy and the family. After all, because laundry and washing clothes are not transacted goods or services when done for your family, they are not recorded on measures of economic productivity or GDP. The housewife was thus largely unproductive by economic measures, and the economy itself was losing potential if a majority of the population was consigned to doing unproductive tasks routinely. So, how did the washing machine evolve from hand-scrubbing clothes by the river to what it is today? Well, it is important to note that the concept of simplifying the washing task itself went through several iterations throughout the years. For example, the earliest instance of a washing machine could be found from an 1833 patent filed for the washboard mentioned earlier. Next, in 1858, Hamilton Smith patented the rotary washing machine 
which was drum-shaped and rotated much like how the modern washing machine does today. The big difference was that this uh, rotary washing machine was still very much hand-powered. They didn't have elect- electricity back then, meaning that just like the washboard, the activity was not yet divorced from the person. So the earliest version that most resembles the washing machines of today was introduced by Bendix Home Appliances and patented it in 1937, which was the first domestic automatic washing machine ever produced. Since then, different versions have built on the model pioneered by Bendix with newer, future, with newer features to attract different markets and improve production efficiencies to make, to make them more affordable. Having briefly touched on this uh, evolution of the washing machine then, what kind of uh, economic lessons can we learn and how can the introduction of the modern-day washing machine be considered a disruption in the classical sense? So firstly, with the introduction of the washing machine, I think the most obvious benefit we can get is that the amount of time that people use for laundry has fallen significantly. So by estimates provided on humanprogress.org, in 2014, the average time spent by Americans on laundry was just one and a half hours. So contrast this with the 11 and a half hour figure that I gave earlier. That was for the 1920s. And that was when rudimentary, you know, earlier versions of washing machines had, such as the washboard or earlier versions of the rotary machine that were already invented. So, so can you imagine then how much more time it would have taken for when, when, when these sort of rudimentary early versions of the washing machine how, how much more time it would have taken for, uh, for people to do the laundry when these weren't, weren't yet invented? When, you know, when people were still washing clothes by, by, I read in some instances they were beating them on stones and some of them were dipping them in a homemade soap. So this dramatic simplification of the task of laundry uh, freed women, really, to a point where a South Korean economist, Ha Jun Chang, calls it a, quote, engine of liberation, end quote saying how, quote, without the washing machine, the scale of change in the role of women in society and in family dynamics would not have been nearly as dramatic, end quote. Now, to be clear, the point here that I'm trying to make is not to exalt the washing machine as like the greatest invention known to mankind, nor am I trying to say that it was the only reason why women's economic conditions have improved dramatically since you know the early 20th century rather the point is that in th- rather the point that i'm trying to make here is that time is an extremely valuable resource when people are not tied down to doing mundane chores they're free to do whatever they please be it watch a tv show play video games or pick up a new language more importantly however they are free to pursue self betterment to pick up skills take up a job earn a wage improve their own outcomes. As Hans Rosling simply says at the end of his TED talk titled The Magic Washing Machine, my mother explained the magic with this machine the very, very first day. She said, quote, now Hans, we have loaded the laundry, the machine will make the work, and now we can go to the library, end quote. So that's the first point here, that the washing machine, the modern day washing machine really cut down the time spent for, for laundry and enable people who were doing laundry, who were spending so much time doing laundry, to go and pursue other things. 
So the second point here that I want to draw from uh, this uh, case of the washing machine is that it is precisely because manufacturers re recognize the value of time to households that they continue to invest and improve their washing machines. Washing machine makers then, in search of their own interest of profit maximization, will both look for ways to streamline their production process to lower manufacturing costs, as well as gather market research and tease out key details that may be included in the next generation of washing machines. Or in other words, finding the best or the cheapest way to help you save time. So one result of this self-interest is that washing machines are now more affordable and available today than ever before. As evidenced in a paper by Stephen Horwitz of Ball State University, he notes that in 1971, just 71.3% of all households owned a washing machine, but that by 2005, that number had improved to 84%. This improvement also holds for poor households. As in his study, in his paper, he, he noted that in 1984, only 58.2% of uh, poor households owned a washing machine, but in 2005, 68.7% of them did. So another result of this self-interest of the washing machine manufacturer is that new products are continually being introduced to meet different markets. So this is shown by Chelsea Follett in an article for the CapEx website where she points out how, quote, in 2007, Panasonic launched laundry machines with a sterilization mechanism designed specifically to address Chinese consumers' priorities and successfully increased its market share in the country, end quote. In fact, China is so fond of this innovation and the time-saving benefits of the washing machine that Chelsea Follett, Chelsea Follett, that Follett notes in the same article how the proportion of urban Chinese households who own a washing machine jumped from less than 10% in 1981, get this, to 97.05% in 2011. That is absolutely incredible. This, then, is the magic of capitalism, where self-interest thrives in a system of mutual exchange. And when both parties have to voluntarily give something that the other seeks, much like how the washing machine maker has to invest in new products or new processes to meet the needs of uh, you know, consumers or Chinese consumers or consumers of different markets, they do this so that they can they can get uh get you know get your get sales revenue from consumers, right? And when they do this, and when consumers do this, both parties win. Right. So finally. Does the introduction of the modern-day automatic electronic washing machine qualify as a disruptive innovation in the classical sense? Well, if you look at it from a sort of a surface level, not quite, right? So in the first place, it is not even clear if uh, the, the firm that, that, that patented the first iteration of that, closely, that, that most closely resembles the modern-day washing machine, Bendix Home Appliances, it's not clear if they posed a challenge to any other established firm who were trying to who were trying to dominate the, the, the laundry business, I guess, since it was unlikely that there was even an established player uh, in, in this industry. Further, on the issues of simplicity and price, you know, it, you, you could argue that the washing machine was definitely way more complicated and definitely much pricier than earlier versions of the washing machine. 
at least certainly if you compare it to a washboard, a washboard is about as simple and cheap as you can get relative to the modern day washing machine. However, if you look at it on a deeper interpretation, if you sort of recognize that the status quo of the time was the arduous task of washing clothes instead of what machine was being used, and there is no doubt that the washing machine, that the modern day washing machine qualifies as a disruptive innovation. This is as the modern machine, the modern day washing machine is by far a simpler process than the manually washing clothes. Where previously you had to scrub clothes for hours on end, now you only need to load the clothes and press a button. Regarding the price, while it is undoubtable that the washboard is a lot cheaper than the modern day washing machine, this does not take into account the time saved from using the latter. And when you factor in all the extra things that you could be doing, rather than scrubbing clothes, you know, maybe you could pick up an extra job, maybe you could pick up some new skills that might help you earn, uh, uh, that might help you advance in your career or lead you to a better career, that the modern day washing machine definitely offers more bang for your buck. At least on a productivity level, you cannot argue that the modern day washing machine is more productive than previous versions. Lastly, what the modern day washing machine challenged was not an established firm, but rather an established way of doing things. And on that front, seeing as, in, seeing as how in cleaning your clothes, you no longer have to slave away for hours on end, it is doubtless that there has been a disruption in the classical sense. If we borrow from the metaphor of the Sisyphean task, doing laundry today is not really, not really any more like pushing a giant boulder up a steep hill in perpetuity. But in today's case, doing laundry is much more akin to maybe kicking a tennis ball down a hill while you lay sunbathing at the top with a gin and tonic in one hand, a book in the other. You know, such is the magic and the wonder of innovation. All right, so that's the first case, the washing machine. Now we're going to move on to the second case. So for the second case, we're going to be moving from the household to the office. So completely different spheres, right? And we're going to be talking about the spreadsheet. That's right, Microsoft Excel. So although many of us are familiar with, you know, Microsoft Excel today, especially if, you know, you, you're working in an office setting, you're a professional, or even in your school, you, you may be doing this, you may be using Excel for assignments. There was a time not long ago where it did not exist. You know, the life of the accountant or the business analyst, therefore, was incredibly tedious. And this, and this would be especially familiar for those of you who have taken maybe an introductory finance course or, you know, an introductory accounting course where you had to manually write out ledgers and models for homework so that you could get the hang of it and remember all the formu formulas and the processes and where, where each line had to go, right? So for those of you listening who are not familiar with this idea of manually doing all the work, a key accounting function lies in preparing financial statements to assess the firm's fiscal health. The income statement, for example, is prepared by collecting all the relevant transactions, such as sales or rent expense or inventory purchases within a period and tallying them up to obtain the aggregate figures for, say, a quarter or a year. So if you ask any accountant today, this task is by no means an easy one, 
you know, some, some, some people might even say it's an incredibly stressful one, right? Certainly, if you go into any big uh, MNC, any big multinational corporation during their, their closing period, their end of year period, and you go into the finance department, you know, you easily see them slaving away and becoming incredibly stressful because they're working to tally up all these figures and making sure they're all right, right? So, so it's incredibly stressful today, this task, right, for accountants. But can you imagine without the modern spreadsheet, the manual task of aggregation? So before we, before the, the man, before that we had the spreadsheet today, this task of aggregating, it took up, you know, many, many days, many, many accountants and it could, an assignment, a simple assignment could take up even weeks. So this is for the accountant. But for the case of the business analyst, who, for instance, is trying to ascertain the value of a firm, so he has to make certain estimates and assumptions regarding how the firm is uh, going to perform into the future. So therefore, he may build a simple model that measures the firm's net income for this year and estimate a certain rate of growth going forward. The trouble for the analyst without the spreadsheet was that in order to adjust one assumption, say sales growth of 5% or, you know, instead of 6%, he had to adjust all the different factors that this would affect, such as gross sales, operating profit, and net profit, not only for this year, but for each year into the future that he is calculating. Now, to be fair, before the spreadsheet became widely available, there, there were sophisticated tools by which companies could use to perform these valuation functions. However, the tools were monopolized by specialists, otherwise known as data processing people, who worked on models on big mainframe computers. This made the valuation function really expensive and only within the purview of large companies. But even then, the demand for modeling tasks within a single firm alone would far outweigh the supply who could provide them. As Theodore Stein, an assistant vice president of data processing at a life insurance company, pointed out, quote, DP has always, always has more requests than it can handle. There are two kinds of backlog, the obvious one of things requested and a hidden one. People say, I won't ask for information because I won't get it anyway, end quote. So the costs for firms were thus crystallized with this, uh, this quote by Stein. In the sense that in the case for, for basic accounting functions, not having the modern day spreadsheet, the task of aggregation for them, it tended to be really tedious and time consuming and labor intensive. But if you look at the case for, of the business analyst, it was all that and bureaucratic. Because good valuation was so difficult to come by back then, that implied that decisions were not always made on the best information. As one programmer noted, quote, in the past, before spreadsheets, people would have just, you know, taken a guess, end quote. So how did the traditional spreadsheet become what it is today? And what sort of implications did the new spreadsheet have for business? The idea was conjured up by Dan Bricklin, then in the spring of 1978, a Harvard MBA student. While working on a ledger sheet for a finance course, he wondered if there was a way in which the task could be made simpler. And then, as Stephen Levy describes in his 1984 article, A Spreadsheet Way of Knowledge, quote, it occurred to him, 
Why not create the spreadsheets on a microcomputer? Why not make an electronic spreadsheet a word processor for figures? Why not design a program that would, that would produce on a computer screen a green glowing ledger so that the calculations as well as the final tabulations will be visible to the person crunching the numbers, end quote. From there, Bricklin would team up with his programmer friend from MIT, Bob Frankston, to develop the first electronic spreadsheet program. In late 1979, contained on a floppy disk and run on the new Apple personal computer, this first iteration of the modern-day spreadsheet, known as the VisiCalc program, was born. So how did the electronic spreadsheet impact the business world, and what kind of disruption did it have for traditional accounting or analysis functions. Firstly, much like how you know, the modern-day washing machine saved a ton of time uh, for people, so did the modern-day spreadsheet save a ton of time for you know, accountants and, uh, and, and, and analysts. However, the simplification of this aggregating task made many jobs redundant. As Planet Money reports in a podcast episode on the topic of spreadsheets, it was estimated that in the time since the, last, since the launch of VisiCalc, about 400,000 jobs were destroyed. Since the digital spreadsheet replaced the need, the need for hordes of accounting clerks or bookkeepers. You know, after all, if figures could be tweaked in seconds instead of hours, this, was, this is the time-saving aspect that I mentioned earlier there's going to be a much less need for labor. And to this point, I guess there is some truth to the suspicions and the warnings of the technology doomsayers who say that investments in technology put people out of work. However, to dwell on this point is really to ignore the other side of the equation, or in other words, the reason why the electronic spreadsheet was invented in the first place. Because accountants were billed by the hour, the time saved from using spreadsheets meant that it was cheaper for clients to purchase them. As a result, and if you follow the economic observation that as things get cheaper, demand tends to increase, the demand for accounting work exploded. In fact, as Planet Money notes in their podcast, since 1979, get this, 600,000 accounting jobs have been created. But perhaps what is even more telling is the effect that the new spreadsheet had on the monopoly of data processing. Now recall earlier that I mentioned that because models were so difficult and tedious to build, they were left to the hands of a specialized division within a large firm who had access to expensive large computers. So the onset of the modern-day spreadsheet destroyed that monopoly because no longer was it the case that a manager had to wait days or weeks or you know queue behind hundreds of orders just to find out the effects of, of uh, one, one you know, little change in his estimate in his calculations, right? Nowadays, he can perform the task by himself just a matter of minutes or a matter of hours. Effectively, the, the, the spreadsheet democratized that kind of processing power. As Levy pointed out in his article, quote, For the first time, businessmen have at their fingertips sophisticated and flexible means to chart all the variables that make and break businesses, end quote. Moreover, with access to such a tool, businesses were able to be more quantitative rather than qualitative in assessing risk, 
the ability to track moving variables with relative ease made it easier and cheaper for entrepreneurs to make better, more informed decisions. Now, think about this, right? So previously, I mentioned that because there was this great bureaucracy, that, that you know, this, uh, the data processing was essentially monopolized within a, a department in large firms. People had to queue up for hours. You had to queue up for, for behind many orders in order to get their requests done, their estimates done. Now you're able to do this by yourself. And, and, and this, is not only, this is not the only thing, right? Not only are you able to do this by yourself, you're able to do this basically error-free, assuming that all your, all your formulas and all your inputs are correct. Your final result should be error-free relative to if you did this manually, where you still had the risk of human error. So, so like I said, and, and like I said just now, the ability to track all these variables with ease, it, it made it a lot easier and cheaper for entrepreneurs to make better decisions. And much like how these spreadsheets made accounting work cheaper and increased the demand for accountancy work, the spreadsheet made valuation work cheaper and increased its usage immensely. Suddenly, entrepreneurs everywhere were willing to venture where they have never been before with the spreadsheet as sort of you know their their guide or their raft to chart dangerous waters as levy notes quote entrepreneurs and their venture capitalist backers are emerging as new culture heroes settlers of another american frontier end quote today the obsession with measuring risk has almost been fetishized in particular industries modern day finance is a great example Right? In an industry where the typical office floor is filled with rows and desks of computers, each running Microsoft Excel, knowing your way around a spreadsheet is you know, basically a job requirement. And, and on the more extreme end, Planet Money even reported that these days, there is now an annual model building competition. And on, on, a, similar, on a similar note, it is not uncommon to hear of interviewers for roles in finance or accounting, uh, you know, to, to ask potential candidates what their favorite Excel short, shortcut is. <laughs> Think about it. It's pretty incredible, right? And I'm sure some of you who are working in finance and maybe you've gone through, maybe you have experienced this yourself, right? How obsessed the, the world of finance and accounting is with, uh, this, uh, spreadsheet and this, uh, this, uh, proficiency with uh, Microsoft Excel. So yes, undoubtedly, it seems even clearer to me that the electronic spreadsheet fits the classical mold of a, dis of a disruptive innovation. The monopoly of data processing was challenged by the invention of a tool that decentralized informational power, making it faster, simpler, and cheaper for firms to build and revise their models. On the accounting side, the electronic spreadsheet simplified the, the, the accounting process, the aggregation process, making it faster and cheaper by multitudes. By doing so, it took down the establishment of the manual ledger spreadsheet, where each transaction and correction had to be adjusted and tabulated by hand. So before closing this section, however, it is worth pointing out some of the worries that Levy raised in his article regarding the the new modern electronic spreadsheet. For instance, the ability to track and identify risk 
has become more of an obsession rather than just a tool. As Levy points out, quote, the spreadsheet is a tool and it is also a worldview, reality by the numbers, end quote. It is good to remember, therefore, that whatever result is left at the bottom line of some model is still very much dependent on the quality of the data or, or the assumptions that are fed into it. Also, it would be best to remember that the spreadsheet still cannot perform one difficult calculation, that of valuing intangible factors. In fact, Levy in his article recalls a story he once read where a business owner, he picked up, you know, he, he bought himself a copy of uh, Microsoft, X, uh, uh, of VisiCalc at the time, and he ran 15 different scenarios on his spreadsheets to identify what the best course of action would be for his restaurant. So after doing all the work, plugging in all the numbers, making all the assumptions, you know, making sure all the estimates, whatever was correct, at the end, so get this, he found out that he could do just as good selling the business, selling the restaurant and investing the money in like, you know, a, a safe, uh, a, a simple deposit account rather than continue to run it, right? So, but, but ultimately he kept the business even though, even though the spreadsheets and all these models and all these fancy uh, tools were, t- were, were, were all telling him, you know, don't, don't waste your time, don't waste so much effort into this business, sell it and just put it and leave someone else to, to, work, uh, to work that investment for you and generate the revenue for you, right? But, but even, even, even when the spreadsheet was telling him to do so, he still did not do it because the, the spreadsheet did not take into account the intangible value that being a restaurant owner gave gave him and let us not forget as well you know the many criticisms that business owners face when they they make decisions to lay off employees to to cut costs of course when you're when you're an, when you're some when you're some analyst or when you're some accountant or when you're some CFO when all you see is some numbers on a screen it becomes easier to detach yourself and make difficult decisions that would negatively impact the livelihoods and outcomes of those affected. But, and maybe perhaps this is why we empathize and feel obligated to make a donation when we see a face of a suffering child, but barely flinch when we are reading about the millions who die of starvation each year. This is sort of the side effect of what Levy was pointing out, right? Reality by the numbers. So on that note, I think it seems fitting to conclude this episode from a more humbler perspective. For although the, the washing machine and the spreadsheet were incredible disruptive innovations that revolutionized their respective industries and brought about great utility for consumers, we should not forget that these innovations were not without its own trade-offs. The onset of the spreadsheet came at the cost of many accounting clerk jobs and bookkeeping jobs, and in the future, you know, new disruptive innovations such as maybe virtual chatbots, they may replace call center rep- uh, representatives, and maybe even self-driving vehicles will replace many drivers. However, is it not the very nature of a disruptive innovation? Is that not the very nature of disruptive innovations to begin with? You know, what kind of difference or benefit do you hope to bring if you do not actually disrupt anything? But more importantly, what kind of utility is lost if these disruptions uh, are not allowed to succeed due to its cost? Right? Should we deny women 
women in developing countries, many today who are still using uh, traditional modes of washing, of, of doing laundry by hand, should we deny these women the, quote, engine of liberation or the modern-day washing machine just because increased energy, energy usage is bad for the environment? You know, should electronic spreadsheets be restricted so that some accounting clerk jobs might be saved? These are not easy questions to answer, nor will they ever be. But going forward, with the advent of new technologies and new inventions, these questions will be asked time and time and time again. And while it is easy for us to know after the fact, you know, while it's easy for me to sit here in the 20th century, in the year 2017, to look at inventions in the 20th century and look at what the outcomes are today uh, and see see how these innovations have turned out and what kind of benefit they bring. In the end, there will doubtless be many, many, many failures along the way uh, for, for future disruptive innovations or potential disruptive innovations, right? But, you know, if future disruptive innovations... Are, are as beneficial or are, you know, if, if, if we look at the example of the washing machine or the electronic spreadsheet, if we look at these as, as examples of potential benefits, potential game-changing industrial industry changes uh, that we can expect in the future, then I think in the long run, although there will be some disruption, there will be some cost, there will be some trade-off, some pain in the short run, ultimately, society and you know, the the majority of us will be better off for it. So with that brings the end of today's episode. Thank you, thank you very much for tuning in. The case examples of the washing machine and the spreadsheet were inspired by Chelsea Follett, who is a managing editor at humanprogress.org, and her article at CapX titled How Capitalism is Setting Washerwomen Free, and the Planet Money podcast episode 606 titled spreadsheets links to these two sources will be listed in the descriptions if and if you're interested so are the links to the economical rice podcast social media pages where you can catch up on the latest episodes or on additional content right so thank you for listening today we're over here we hope to serve you the grains of capitalism (laughs) 